Counter Melody, the podcast on great singers and great singing. I am your host, Daniel Gundlach, and I am thrilled to share with you my views derived from a lifetime of listening on the opera and classical singers about whom I am most passionate. I hope that when you hear these voices, you might echo me in saying, God, I love her, or... God, I love him. Now, without any further ado, I bring you this week's episode. Welcome to episode two of Counter Melody. When I was growing up, my mother used to remark, in a not necessarily approving way, that all my actions were just intended to stir people up. I was so contrary. I always had to be different. Well, when I was just starting out in my singing career, there weren't as many countertenors out there as there are today. So maybe that was just another way in which I was trying to be different, by being a contrary countertenor. And now that I'm a podcaster as well as a countertenor, I can say that even at this early stage, podcasting suits me right down to the ground. I love this work. I chose the title of this podcast, Counter Melody, quite intentionally. For one thing, a counter melody is a melodic thread weaving itself in and out around the main melody, often, but not always, in a lower range. And of course, the prefix counter makes reference to my voice type as well. Today, I present as my first guest on Counter Melody a fellow countertenor, and a very fine one at that. Nicholas Tamania and I first became acquainted more than 10 years ago as he was just beginning his journey as a professional countertenor. Since then, he has blossomed into a fine artist. To my ear, one of the most engaging and interesting singers in his fach. Nicholas sat down with me in June of this year while he was here in Berlin rehearsing and performing two different Handel roles at the 2019 Handel Festspiele in Halle. We talked for a good long time on a range of topics, from Alma Fudd to Les Parapluies de Cherbourg. In between, we actually also talked about music, many different aspects of music, and countertenordom in particular. Excerpts from this interview will comprise the next two episodes of Counter Melody. So let me tell you a little bit about Nicholas.
Countertenor Nicholas Tamania has garnered widespread acclaim for his commanding stage presence, expressive vocal timbre, breathtaking musicianship, and superb acting skills, establishing himself as a leading countertenor in his generation. The New York Times has described him as a standout, singing with a luminous countertenor, strong coloratura, and dramatic conviction. In 2019, he joins the Wiener Staatsoper and Metropolitan Opera making his debuts in both houses, covering productions of Britain's Midsummer Night's Dream as Oberon and Handel's Agrippina as Narciso, respectively. His international career began in 2014, when he sang the role of Oronte in Handel's Riccardo Primo with the Badisches Staatstheater Handel Festspiele in Karlsruhe, a production directed by Benjamin Lazare. Since then, he has sung leading roles in operas by Handel, Philip Glass, Hase, Gluck, Leonardo Vinci, Monteverdi, Jonathan Dove, and others, with Parnassus Arts, the Oldenburgische Staatstheater, the Nederlandse Reisopera, Lautenkompagnie, the Opera de Haute-Normandie-Rouen, the Theater an der Wien, the Melbourne Consort, the Musikfestspiele Potsdam, and the Handel Festspiele Halle. Upcoming debuts include the London Festival of Baroque Music and the Göttingen Handel Festspiele. In the United States, he has sung with Opera Omaha, the Florentine Opera Company, the Spoleto Festival USA, and at Carnegie Hall. He recently recorded the role of Ermanno in Vinci's Gismondo, Re di Polonia, for Warner Classics. His recording, Son of England, music of Jeremiah Clark and Henry Purcell, with Vincent Dimestre and Le Poème Harmonique, is currently available on the Alpha Classics label. I want to also remind you all of the existence of a dedicated website that features show notes for every single episode. CounterMelodyPodcast.com I worked extremely hard on the production for the first episode, and there's also a great deal of very interesting information about my guest and a few other things that we touch upon in the course of this first part of our interview. So do look at countermelodypodcast.com. That's countermelody, one word. There's lots there. So give it a gander, okay? Thanks. Before we jump into the interview... I'd love to share a little clip with you of Nicholas singing this past spring in Handel's Il Pastor Fido at the Handel Festspiele in Halle.
This past spring and summer, Nicholas found himself in the somewhat unusual position of doing two contrasting handle rolls, one after the other, in the same festival. I began our interview by asking him to describe what this was like. I was rehearsing and performing with Parnassus Arts Productions, which is my management, and uh, they also are a production company. And we were doing Handel's Il Pastor Fido as part of the Halle Händelfestspiele in Bad Laugstedt, which is about 20 somewhat minutes outside of Halle uh, in the Goethe Theater, which was a, a theater that Goethe had founded and ran at one point in his life and had Schiller there. And so all of these very important people were there. Wagner had one of his first positions as dirigent, as a conductor in this theater, and conducted Don Giovanni, if I remember correctly, in this theater. So this is a very interesting theater space, and it's one of the oldest, if not the oldest, original theaters that's still standing, that hasn't been burned down and replaced or in some other form. And it has still all of its original Baroque stagecraft mechanisms in the basement that you can run and use like for in, Baroque. Like opera. in Drottningholm, yes, for yes. instance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Of course, this is much later than the Baroque period, this theater, but it uses the same basic technology as we would have used in the Baroque period. So this is kind of interesting to have. With Il Pastor Fido that we were doing with Parnassus, it was actually a modern production, so we weren't using any of this machinery. We did a very interesting parallel stories running at the same time. There was a dancer actor who was doing a more modern, up-to-date story that tied in with the ancient Greek Arcadia story of Il Pastor Fido. And you had these two stories lines crossing in and out in this particular staging. Now is Il Pastor Fido like a serenata or is it an opera proper? It's an opera. Just, it's a bit short. Uh, it was actually a kind of a failure in Handel's time. Mm-hmm. It wasn't as popular for a few different reasons. I, one being that the story lacked uh, the dramatic punch of some of his other works. This was uh, a, a work that was kind of early on in his years in London and one of the first oh, but things... It's, but it was from the London period. It was period. from this period. Okay. But the story is a bit silly. Basically, shepherds and nymphs running around and like, who loves who, who doesn't love the other person, and then this one's jealous, and, and so you have these kind of typical perhaps, themes. Are there perhaps people in uh, incognito? We, we don't quite have that as much, but there is a, a very funny scene, actually, between me and my love. And I think she is an animal behind a bush, and I shoot her with an arrow. <laughs> and then when I shoot her, I suddenly realize, even though the whole opera I've been trying to run away from her and run away from love, quote-unquote, especially running away from Cupid, because all I care about is hunting and Diana, I finally fall in love with her because I shot her. She actually has a moment where she dies on stage, and then I'm really sad, and I sing this beautiful aria, but then through my love, she wakes up, and suddenly she's okay. With this particular staging, we just went for it. We didn't try to excuse the fact that the libretto was a little silly or that it had weird moments. We just kind of embraced those and went for yes. them full throttle. And I think the audience went with that. They got it as humor. This is how we approached it. But then it had this other layer of very serious connotations from the story that were trying to be built into this second parallel story, which was the story of a man who had a girlfriend that he proposed to and then he slept with her best friend. But it sounds a little like a telenovela. But it was a little telenovela and like and so this had this aspect of what is fidelity what is truth and love was the question of the opera were people getting slapped across the face very hard Uh, no we didn't have that so well I did actually that's a lie I did get to have a very fun moment where I threw a pillow in Dorinda's face (laughs) pillow talk 
Now, I had seen you posted some of this on your Facebook uh, professional page, and I believe you refer to your character as Ditsy. Is that possible? <laughs> you know what it is about him? He's just so narrow-minded. He's so narrow-focused. All he cares about is hunting. His life as a hunter and his life as a follower and a worshiper of Diana. And he is so blinded by this one-track devotion that he can't recognize that he actually is in love with this other character, Dorinda. We're in this bind of people are being forced to get married that don't really love each other, and then other people love other characters, but they're not giving them the time of day. And so then, it, how does everyone end up with the right person? And it's a little maybe Midsummer Night's Dreamish in that yes, way too. Yes, sounds like. Uh, but sounds doesn't quite have all of the magical elements of the Shakespeare. Yes, yes. What was fun for me was that it was comedy, and I have rarely gotten to play comedy, and I think that I do a pretty good job. I like doing it. It's fun, and audiences seem to think it was funny, but it's just not the kind of thing that I guess my voice lends itself to all the time, so I've done a lot more serious characters, or heartbroken, or villains, even, which can have I a comic. This was, for me, with, during yeah. my time singing this type of repertoire, I found I was always cast in the secondary villain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That can be fun. It can be fun. I remember this being booed yeah. because they didn't like my character. <laughs> I don't think, I mean, maybe I sang badly. I don't know. <laughs> but I don't think that's what it was about. Yeah. It was just like, oh, here's the baddie, the heavy. Let's boo him. Yeah. And he comes out for his bow. I was like, hello, I'm actually not that person, but thank you for your boos. I don't know. I think that actually that's kind of a compliment. No, it's a, of course it's a compliment. <laughs> but not for somebody who takes themselves much too seriously. <laughs> the way that I do. <laughs> but do tell us a little bit too about the Alcina now. Yes, so, so like I said, this is a comic role. This was more modern. It was, in terms of the staging, I was running around a lot on stage and it played it a little like Elmer Fudd. Be very, very quiet. I'm hunting wabbits. <laughs> then to come to Alcina, which we're rehearsing side by side with the performances of Il Pastor Fido. This is being done by a director who's more interested in Baroque gesture. It's using the art of position on stage, your body position, your hand position, the direction in which you're directing your speech and where you're placed on stage has a very significant role to play in this hierarchical theater style that of the time, obviously, people really understood. Some of it is just natural human inclination, so we understand some of those things just naturally. Well, the meaning of the, the meaning of the gestures, because we still mm -hmm. use them. There's certain things we do that come out of this codified theatrical form that are ancient gestures that people have been using for <laughs> hundreds, if not thousands of years. So I think there is something to it that even though it's an old, more codified style, it can be very much understood by modern audiences. It's a more direct, maybe a little bit more literal transmission, as opposed to where we go with modern acting is a lot more with subtext. It's a lot more with psychology. It's sort of coming at the meaning through all of the other layers that we understand about the character, yes. instead of just yes. going directly to sad, happy whatever it is more directly. I find them both particularly fascinating. I don't... I'm probably more used to playing modern acting roles yeah. because a lot of productions I've done thus far have more or less applied that style of acting, but which is coming done, out of I theater. know you've done other productions I have, that also use the basics of Baroque gesture and... Exactly. Yeah. So um, my first time doing this was with a brilliant French director. His name's Benjamin Lazare. 
And he does incredible stuff with Baroque gesture and text. He's mostly had a lot to do with French Baroque theater, but he started to branch out to doing this into other domains. Was so. this the one that you, where the stage was covered with candles? Yes. Yes, I remember you telling me about this one. This is also something he's very much known for. This was part of the 14-15 seasons at the Händelfestspiele in Karlsruhe. And he had staged it to be with Baroque gesture, with Baroque-style sets and costumes, beautiful, amazing costumes. The opera was Ricardo Primo by Handel, Richard I, Richard the Lionheart. Yes, so Benjamin Lazar is sort of particularly known for his use of candlelight, and that's a very important part of his style. It's a very different thing when you're working with an open flame versus standard stage light. There's something more living about it when you have this light that's the flame yes. that's flickering, and it, even that is affecting the sort of well, it makes a different kind of, of immediacy, doing. doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, maybe I'm exaggerating, but it was, it was something like eight thousand candles on stage. Well, yeah, you know? So you really have to be quite yeah. careful. In fact, yeah. this little light, mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This. Now, to go back to Alcina again, in a way, this opera embodies so many of the Handelian tropes. A straying male who then is pursued by the love interest or wife that he has deserted, who's mm -hmm. traveling, in fact, in drag to <laughs> retrieve him and rescue him from this situation in which he has gotten himself entangled. Yes. And yes. you are, in fact, in this case, the male who has gone astray. Right. Handel loves flawed heroes, and, and yes. Ruggiero is certainly one of these, and I feel like he, he's lost his path. He's the knight who somehow strayed off the path and now is stuck on this island completely under the magic spell of Alcina. Luckily, Bradamante, his wife, does come to his rescue and helps alongside Meliso, his old teacher. Uh, the base, of The course. base part yes. helps to kind of bring him to his senses. And I think the thing that actually makes Alcina one of Handel's most beloved operas is the magical element. Whenever he sort of brings magic into his operas, there's something different happens in terms of the libretto and in terms of the music. He has a wide-eyed, childlike way of taking magic and making it something really spectacular on stage. And he does this in Rinaldo, he does this in Alcina. There are some real amazing moments that you may not find in maybe some of the more historical operas that have amazing bravura mu music and things like this, but there's something special. And, and I think Alcina, interestingly, may not be the most over-the-top bravura arias. A lot of them are actually quite lyric. A lot of them have shorter phrases. They're not quite these same long five measures of 16th notes right. things that you're used to hearing. But do you get certainly a wide range of musical yes. styles and tempi and different kinds of arias to sing He gives in a, this a wide yeah. breadth. So you, you go from rather challenging bravura arias to, to then the much more beautiful Handelian Lena yes. that yes. we're used to, like Verdi Prati, Verdi Prati, uh, Milusinga, these two yes. in particular. Have I'm just going to butt in here for a moment because we've been talking about all the wonderful music in Alcina, and uh, I am lucky enough to have in my possession a clip of Nicholas singing the very aria that we were just speaking of, Verdi Prati, which I know you are going to be delighted to hear. It's just gorgeous.
You're sitting in front of me and you're wearing a t-shirt with the name of my hometown on it, Milwaukee. <laughs> and in fact, I believe you might have gotten that t-shirt when you were in my hometown just within the past few months. Yes. Singing, in fact, a very different kind of opera. Mm. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. This was really exciting for me to actually do something in the United States for once because I don't get too many opportunities. But Milwaukee was really fun. It was a great company to work for really wonderful and people. And what company was it? Florentine Opera. The opera was Monteverdi's L'Incoronazione di Popea and I was singing the role of Ottone. And this is a by comparison to Alcina night and day in terms of range. I mean Ottone is an extremely low role. But doing 17th century opera like Cavalli, like Monteverdi is a different art form I find from singing other opera. Certainly different from singing Handel. What's the challenge in those operas is more about the text. And it was more like approaching it like an actor. I've always loved doing 17th century stuff because you can play with colors in the voice. You can play with timing the way actors play with timing. It's not quite so ruled by orchestral limitations. Like, it's very recitative based. Yes. Opera seria from the time of Handel, you're more likely to have the sections of recitative that usually are expositional and then the arias themselves or mm-hmm. some occasionally duets that then are more reflective on what has been revealed in the recitative. It, but it's a very different style of writing overall in these early Baroque operas of Monteverdi and Cavalli. This was not your first Ottone though, was it? I did it once as a concert version in a small venue, but I hadn't really done it as the full opera. Yeah, this was a particularly special thing for me because I think the role sits in my voice really beautifully. It's, It's a beautiful part. I think he's also played in different ways and a little bit misunderstood. I feel like, yes, maybe a little on the surface, he seems a bit like a wimp, but he's not. And I was really clear on how I wanted to bring that to the fore with Robin Guarino, the director who was brilliant to work with, and she really allowed me to explore the strength of Ottone. I mean, Ottone is a military man. You can't negate that. He grew up with uh, Nerone. They have a, a very strong friendship prior to the opera. If you read historically, they certainly had a lot to do with each other over the periods of their lives. I think that it's important to not lose sight of the fact that yes, he was his friend, he was betrayed by his friend, his friend went and slept with his wife and stole his wife away from him and he's a military man, he has a career, he has to maintain a certain standing in society and he's bound by certain limitations. He can't obviously go against the emperor and what the emperor desires is his wife. He has to on some level swallow that but you can imagine this would lead anybody in that sort of situation to do things that are maybe not particularly wholesome. And in the case of Drusilla, it's sort of sad Wait, because... Can you tell us who Drusilla yeah, is? Yeah, so Drusilla is the one who chases after Ottone. She loves him. Basically somebody who's obviously involved in the court. But Drusilla is in some ways been devoted to Ottone. And Ottone is... Yes, he probably slept around with her, but he never treated her as particularly serious. He still loved Popea. Popea was his world. And when that was no longer available to him and Popea shuts him out of her life, he basically turns to Drusilla because Drusilla is always available. She's the one who is like, well, I'll love you no matter what, even if you don't leave your wife for me. And and she's sort of the one who is always kind of waiting and standing by. And I figure in some ways I can bury my feelings about Popea and maybe make that work. But then as the opera progresses, I also 
also used Rosila in a very not nice way by taking her clothing and saying, I'm gonna, I need this in order to enact this plot, which was to no, kill Popea. I must say, I mean, and it's I... not the nicest thing. And even though he's kind of this, the sympathetic character, it's not always the nicest character either. So, no, but see, here's the thing. None of these characters are likable. None. Even you think Ottavia, who is Nerone's wife, who is the wronged party in all of this, yeah. she still manages to pull a few nasty tricks out of her uh, oh, handbag, yeah. doesn't she? Telling Ottone that if you don't kill Popea, as I'm telling you, then I will tell Nerone that you tried to rape me and that will be curtains for you if you don't do this for me. And Drusilla, who is really perhaps on some level the most likable of the characters, she still is perfectly willing to lend Ottone her clothes so that he can dress up as Drusilla to get into the garden where Popea is sleeping to murder her. Right. So Drusilla is thinking, okay, Felice Cormio, because he's going to kill the woman who's, who comes between us. Yes. And Ottone himself also. There are some very unlikable aspects of, in his behavior. Of course, we can look at Nerone and Popea and see incredible depths of evil, but there's <laughs> not one morally upstanding character in this piece. No. I mean, really, not even Seneca. Not uh, even. Which makes it a really compelling piece, I think, for contemporary audiences. On TV series and things like this, you know, we're so used to our flawed heroes these days. Mm -hmm. Well, every single character in this particular opera is flawed. Yes, and I think mm -hmm. that's why modern audiences can connect with it. And, yes. and you play those dichotomies. If you really play them on stage, what's the conflict for each of them? Where are they trying to be good and just? And where are they falling short of that? And that's, for me, why Otone was such a great character. Because for me, it's really like an acting role. You know, you have yes. so much meat. Yes. And so much to work with. People play this role often on the weaker side I think also because of the register in which it sits, it's on the lower side and it can come across as weak only in that it's so low that it doesn't penetrate in the same way. Yes. But one of the strengths for me, at least from a vocal perspective, has always been that I have a good amount of ping in the lower part of my voice, which I was trying to bring to bear as the virility of Otone. Hi, I'm just going to jump in again here to say that, unfortunately, Nicholas didn't have any clips from the Popea that he had sung, but uh, we are about to launch into a little discussion of the particulars of the countertenor voice, and I remark that I think that Nicholas and I have similar uh, vocal qualities in a way. So, in fact, I have, from a very old demo, a little clip that I did from Popea, and... Uh, uh, so I'm just going to play a little bit of it. It's not terribly stylistic. I mean, it's with piano and all of this. But it does give you a little chance to hear my voice and to compare it with uh, what you've already heard of Nicholas. And uh, and then we'll launch into our little discussion of the countertenor voice and specifically how Nicholas found his. So here's a little clip of me singing from Popea, accompanied, by the way, by the peerless Daniel Beckwith. Oh. 
it's a fair thing to say that both you and I have voices that are a little bit more grounded in that lower register. Mm-hmm. And I know that for me, when I was beginning my study as a countertenor, that that was the one aspect that I absolutely had to resolve, getting the lower part of one's range to speak in such a way that it will be heard and that it doesn't degenerate into a sort of white, vibratoless, unsupported, almost boyish sound, mm-hmm. which one sometimes hears with a certain style of countertenor singing. Thank Perhaps you'd like to say a little bit about your voice and how you perceive your voice fitting together. Well, for me, the path to that was very interesting because I came to countertenor quite late. I was in school, trained as a tenor, at times a baritone. We kind of fooled with different repertoire. I couldn't quite figure out where I landed in the spectrum of things. Just very common, especially young singers early on. And I was singing, actually, a regular church job at the time at St. Boniface Church in Brooklyn, New York. And I had joined the choir on <laughs> the Easter week, which is baptism by fire. <laughs> and uh, and I had to do Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, all of them back to back. And this was quite a challenge. I was put in the tenor section, which often I find in choral music sits right in the passaggio and right in this area in the voice where the negotiation of vowel and having space and all of these things can be a little touchy when your technique isn't quite worked out or even if it is, if you're tired, different things like this. And if it's not your true range. And if it's not your true range, which was part of the issue. I started to realize that I could bring a lot of head voice and a lot of this falsetto mix down. And I just had a natural ability to do that. That was something... And to blend it smoothly. To blend it smoothly. And I didn't really know what I was doing, but I was in a way strengthening and training a countertenor sound. But the point was to just make it so that when I was in the extreme of the tenor range that I wasn't exhausting myself through the rehearsals or the services. Mm -hmm. So I was actually developing this without really knowing it. And then over time, that sort of developed into something that I could use and I always knew I had this ability to imitate mezzo friends of mine and every countertenor can probably say that they've had this at some point. It was very clear to me that it was an easy thing for me to do but that didn't necessarily mean that I thought that that was actually a viable voice. So I didn't... Exactly. Oh man, it sounds like my story. Didn't... Yes. (laughs) It didn't quite register for a while that that was actually a legitimate thing for me to do. Even though I was... I mean, as I was coming into my own as a young singer, David Daniels, Brian Osawa, all of these singers were already well into their careers and I certainly had examples of countertenors in my view. It wasn't like I started in a time where like in Alfred Deller's day when it was just Alfred Deller, you know, practically and and Russell Oberlin. But you had already an example set, but it took me a long time to come around to it and that mostly had to do with in that time there wasn't a lot that guided you there. When did you actually start thinking about countertenor being an option for you as a career choice. Really. Yeah. Well, I was kind of reaching my the end of the wick, as it were, and I felt like the candle was burning out as a tenor. Mm-hmm. I was singing a really difficult role, and why I was singing it, it was never appropriate for me. What I, was it? I was singing in Così Fan Tutte, Ferrando, oh which God. 
It's one of the hardest tenor roles in the Mozart repertoire. But I was just out of school. I was still floundering a bit and couldn't quite figure out my path. I had a lot of other skills. So in other words, all through your training, you were a tenor. I did some baritone things. Okay. But I hadn't quite... But you never really started exploring the the falsetto. God forbid that I use that word because it's not necessarily even an accurate term. But with the upper extension that a countertenor has, yeah. you hadn't really... I hadn't explored it terribly, but like I said, with the choir, and then also I think when I was trying to do some of this lighter French repertoire, the I was learning... The stuff, you mean? Or... No, no. I was singing things like Pearl Fishers or something yes. like this. I was okay. To sing those properly, there is a certain degree of wamix that has to come into the voice. It's a certain kind of tenor. But one hears that even a classic French dramatic tenor like Georges Thiel... He brings that quality in, even if it's a massive sound. I agree with you completely that that different kind of vocal ambiance or it's, something, right. right? As, say, compared to later 19th century Italian repertoire. So, oh, and one, one is less likely to encounter that among tenors singing that repertoire in this day and age. But if you go back in the past to the earlier years of the 20th century, you do hear a big difference. Oh, and absolutely. People would talk about different national schools singing. Yep. And working on some of that French repertoire also opened up that possibility for you. It taught me there were different places in my voice than maybe I even knew about. And that there were different ways in which I could use the muscles and the the placement and where the voice sort of wanted to ring and all of these things. I was experimenting a lot. But you were also very lucky to connect with a voice teacher who really helped you and continues to guide you. Yes, that's my my vocal mama, as I call her. Alyssa Grimaldi, she's amazing. She's in New York. Did you go to her with a specific question about am I a countertenor or did that emerge as you started your study? No, that emerged and the funny thing is she was at my disastrous cosy fun tutte <laughs> but she had come up to me afterwards, even through that horrifically painful experience she heard potential there and so she came to me and said you're amazing on stage, you're so musical but essentially I don't think you know what you're doing with your voice and, and I said that's pretty accurate I came to her to work and she immediately put me on this amazing program of coming to her three times a week and we were doing two hour sessions and building stamina and learning things that I hadn't really explored or I hadn't heard them said in the way that she was saying them. With her, the doors opened. With certain people, just things click. And with Alyssa, this was the case. She can accurately assess what's going on in my body and she usually pinpoints it. And that's a a very rare gift. I was particularly lucky to find her and that changed the whole course for me. I had started with her initially as doing a little bit of tenor. We were like, "Mm, this isn't quite right. We worked with a little bit of baritone. We started to do a little more musical theater like I did when I was younger. She listened to tons of recordings of me younger and analyzed it and heard in my younger voice, especially around 15. I mean, I really sounded like a baritone. And when I was very young, she was like, this is what's happening here. Like you've lost these lower partials trying to sing in a register that just isn't your voice. I was a lot about lifting my larynx a lot and there was a feeling of not really supporting and really being on my body. 
But and isn't it interesting and perhaps somewhat counterintuitive that to find the high part of your voice, you really had to tap into connecting with the low part. It absolutely. Right? I mean, that's and everything. I, and I am so much a believer in that particular school of singing. And another thing that I wanted to say, it sounds to me, and you may uh, agree or disagree with me, about this, I suspect you'll agree, that in fact, some people think of the countertenor voice as being something that exists outside of the spectrum of all other voices, and that countertenors had to be trained in a particular way that's fundamentally different than other singers. And I think that when that is the case, that one hears that in the end result and that it's not an integrated, satisfying sound. And for me, one of the things that I consider to be of primary importance is that one has a really grounded sound. And that's one of the things that I particularly admire about your singing. It's just naturally there, naturally in, in scare quotes, perhaps, because one has to work very hard <laughs> at getting this to line up in such a way. And what that feels like in terms of how the breath moves through your body and how support works and all of that. Absolutely. 1,000%. Yeah. I mean, I agree oh, with you. Well, I'm of so course. glad we agree on that. There's another thing that I know that we're going to agree on, and I would like you to speak a little bit about this as well. The importance of language in singing. Well, I'll relate it to a little bit to the Monteverdi. I think when you're yes. doing things from the 17th century in particular, which is so recitativo style, if you're not really engaging with the Italian language in a way that's trying to bring out all of its connotations, the, the poetic meaning of the way in which he's setting this. I mean, it's so brilliant. When I think of Monteverdi, I think of the most expert text setting for Italian. If you come from it from a linguistic perspective of the beauty of the Italian language, the prosody, the lilt of it, the poetic usage of the words, all of these things are so important. I think if you only scratch the surface and go off a translation that just puts it into an order of words that you can understand in your native language, in my case, obviously, my first language was English, but I did have Italian at home. I had, I had a grandmother who spoke it yes. and was exposed to it at a young age. I didn't necessarily formally study it, but I kind of learned it through family. And a bit dialectical Italian at that. It was a mix of Sicilian and Southern Italian. I was exposed to it at a young age. And I think that that definitely affected my ear and my ability to pick up language because I had it younger. But I think it, it also was just a passion of mine. So as I got older, I got really obsessed with French. For whatever reason, I never Et understood. Et pourquoi pas? Et pourquoi pas? Je sais pas But I started very young, at like 10, when my dad said I used to fall asleep with the dictionary next to me. And I literally would like learn 10 words a day and I was just really into this language. And I bought movies in French and and I was just obsessed with it. I don't know why. I, I thought the language was just so incredibly beautiful. And I wanted nothing more than to speak it. Mais je ne pourrai jamais vivre sans toi. Je ne pourrai pas ne pas pas j'amourrai. Je te cache. What's your favorite French movie off the top of your head? Oh, 
favorite French movie. Well, when I was a kid, just to talk yeah, about sure, at that sure. time when I would watch over and over again was Les Parpuis de Cherbourg. Oh my god! Do you, <laughs> wait, wait, wait! Oh my, oh my god! <laughs> Me too. Yeah. I went to a folk fair when I was in junior high. That's the film that they were showing in the auditorium. There's all this folk dancing crap going on and all this. I went into the theater and that was the film, and I was so beguiled and enchanted. Already was kind of obsessed with things French as well when I was 10 years old. My favorite opera was Pelleas et Mélisande. And I don't think that for a 10-year-old that that's <laughs> a normal state of affairs. to bringing you more next week when we continue our discussion. We speak about Nicholas's early musical influences growing up. We talk about favorite singers of his, and we expand even further upon the topic of language and communication as all important aspects of the singer's art. Please join us next week. I look forward to sharing more with you then. Until then, my friends, keep the song in your hearts. I'm Daniel Gundlach. <laughs>